Surely we are not blind, are we? It's a significant question for so many reasons, particularly as it serves as a kind of punchline at the end of this wonderful story of a boy born blind who is healed both physically and spiritually. What a rich response Jesus gives, too. If you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, we see your sin remains. <laughs> my head is spinning. Good morning. My name is Paul Fulmer. I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, and I've been enjoying the summer of compassion here at Valley Presbyterian Church, attending, uh, often sitting in the back there. Uh, it's the images of Pastor Jenny and members of the church in Africa have been so inspirational for me as someone who attends here, as well as Karen Armstrong's book, The 12 Steps to Compassion. I hope you've been enjoying that. And I think that if we put our heads together and chew on this interaction between the religious leaders and Jesus, we're going to find that we end upon a point very similar to the seventh step of Karen Armstrong's book, acknowledging how little we know. But uh, let's start with a word of prayer, shall we? Please join me in prayer. Dear God, enlighten our minds and kindle our hearts with the presence of your spirit, that we might hear words of comfort from you, that we might hear words of challenge as well through our reflection on scripture this morning. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Surely we are not blind, are we? The question coming at the tail end of John 9 serves as the punchline to an ironic joke that begins as the boy born blind gains his sight. This chapter is truly impressive. I think it's one of the finest literary writings of the whole New Testament. So I'm excited to have a chance to talk about it this morning in that it has these two intersecting plot lines that mirror one another and two messages to match. John 9 is truly a masterpiece. You'll find it on page 102 and the Bible on the rack ahead of you if you want to follow along. It's in uh, the New Testament section. Let's take both plot lines together and then, uh, I mean individually, and then we'll see how they uh, interact together. And the first plot line deals with the boy born blind. Early in the chapter, he gains his physical ability to see, and it really is a minor part of the story overall. Then he'll gain his spiritual sight in four phases, each of which is highlighted by a proclamation that the boy makes. So to start in verse 11, as the boy is being pummeled with questions by the community about how it was he got his sight back, he says that he knows only, quote, that the man called Jesus healed me. What he knows about Jesus to start then is simply his name. The guy named Jesus healed me. Then, moving on to verse 17, at the end of a second questioning, this time on the part of the religious leaders, the boy born blind also sees that Jesus is, quote, a prophet. He is a prophet, he says. So he, his name is Jesus, and somehow he's a prophet. Then at the end of a third impassioned interrogation, 
by the religious leaders, which really gets quite heated. The boy born blind sees Jesus as being, quote, from God. Now he sees his name is Jesus, he's a prophet, he's from God, and finally, following interrogations at the end of the story, as the boy born blind is being consoled by Jesus himself, what does he do? He comes to worship Jesus as God. In verse 38, he proclaims to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. So you catch the progression, right, of this spiritual healing from knowing Jesus' name to knowing he's a prophet. He's a prophet from God, and then he's worthy of worship. It's kind of a, a nice, smooth, organized plan. But wait, there's more. For along with this highly structured piece, there's this second plot line that mirrors the first, also highlighted by direct statements in the chapter. For just as the boy born blind is seeing more and more, the bad guys, those religious leaders, what's happening to them? They're seeing less and less. So in their first investigation, they say, we know that Jesus is not from God. That's verse 16. Why? Because he doesn't observe the Sabbath. So their spiritual blindness is pretty great in the terms of this gospel, right? Then, as these religious leaders start the second interrogation, they say that they know that Jesus is a sinner. Kind of that second phase on their step down. And the next step down comes as the boy born blind asserts in verse 30, that the religious leaders don't even know where he comes from. It's one of those Disney Channel things where the kids are telling the parents what they don't know, the evil leaders. So they're working their way down, and our reading today comes from the fourth, the lowest level, the punchline, where they say, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus' basic answer is, Yes, you are. This boy born blind now sees, and you have gone the opposite way. You are blind. Now, in case anybody missed this structure, it's right there in the text, and so often the text provides a, uh, reinforcement of its important points, right? And so we read in verse 39, Jesus says, I have come, why? that those who do not see may see, that's the upward arc, right, of the boy born blind, and that those who do see may become blind, Jesus says. The overall structure then is actually a very popular structure in the ancient world. What do we have here? Up and down. It's an X, right? The Greek letter X is chi. So the whole story is structured as a chiasm to which the ancients say, boring, we've seen it before. But it's a helpful way for communicating to an aural audience that's not going to be able to read and study the text. They're listening. Their ear is trained to listen for chiasms. With the additional uh, help of verse 39, the structure is strong and effective. Why is it so tidy, so clean? What's the purpose? What's the function? Perhaps it's a result of simple inspiration, right? As the author is writing his text to a community. Perhaps what we have 
is an ancient sermon that's been thought through carefully, rewritten and rewritten, and so these artistic elements are involved. But remember, when you look at the text, you can often find out good pieces of, of information as well and address our questions. And sure enough, right in verse 27, the boy born blind asked the religious leaders, do you also want to become his disciple? So many believe that this finely crafted chiastic story of a boy born blind perhaps served the earliest Christian communities as part of an early catechism, a confirmation curriculum of sorts, intended to both instruct Christian disciples and to offer a warning, right? The instruction goes up and the warning comes down. Moving away from compassion and discipleship perhaps is a problem of older members of the congregation. And the religious leaders lose their sight, as is possible, because they assume they know it all. Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. For them, blindness is the place to be, and that also is so familiar to the ancient audience. I wonder if you hear Socrates here in the text, and I suspect that the early first century audience would have picked up in the punchline the underlying echo of Socrates, who lived 400 years before this time of the writing of this gospel, who had his wildly famous encapsulation of his life teaching, simply stated in five Greek words, hen oida, hati uden oida. One thing I know, that I know nothing. Right? So when Jesus says, the, uh, Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not have sin, they probably also hear, if you knew that you knew nothing, that you were blind, you would be all right. You would not have sin. And when Jesus says, now that you say, we see your sin remains, they go, aha, that's Socrates' big point. Because you think you know something, you don't. There is one thing I know, that I know nothing. Regardless of whether the audience picks up on this illusion or not, the common ancient virtue that runs across several cultures, Jewish, Greek, is to know nothing, to be blind. Now, we might think, what's the problem with knowing something? What's the sin? It's not like I've stolen something or I've killed somebody by claiming to know something. What is the sin with knowing something? In this case, it's not an action. Rather, it's a process. Like that process by which the boy comes to see, the process by which the religious leaders become blind. So, looking for answers for knowing something, feeling that you know, is part of a process of sin through which you miss the mark, right? Hamartia, sin. You stop living. The better way, the compassionate way, is to acknowledge how little we know. During our childhood and teenage years growing up in the hills of Sharon Heights Menlo Park, my siblings and I, we were exceptional kids. We were exceptional in terms of the amount of trouble that we could stir up. 
Most of the time between the time we got home from school and before our parents came home from work. In those hours, my brother, my younger sister, myself, and many of our childhood friends had the time and the energy to think creatively beyond the usual conclusions. And we had adventure after adventure as a result. Truly, though we were without teachers, though we were without parents, we learned some of life's most important lessons in these times alone. We learned that a sparkler can light a backyard on fire <laughs> and that a two-liter bottle of soda won't put it out. We learned how to make a cannon from a tennis ball can and that this cannon can also light the backyard on fire. We even learned that you can make your own miniature helium balloon from a thin plastic bag tied around a small lit candle. But we never learned where the lit candle floated off to. The childhood lesson that most closely touches upon the virtue of acknowledging how little we know came one year in the fall as our neighbors moved away. It was a large family. And as they thinned out their belongings in preparation to move, they bequeathed to us an old, homemade, pedal-driven go-kart. Having been used and abused for 20 years at that point, this old go-kart was, to my eyes, essentially a rusty hunk of scrap metal. Thanks a lot, I thought. This thing simply needs to be recycled. In my opinion, the present was frustrating at best, like giving kids baker's chocolate without any sugar, right? One day, however, in the lull of those after-school hours, my brother opened the garage door and began to take that cart apart. A small group of us neighborhood kids gathered around to watch, and we saw that a particular interest in my brother was the wheels on this go-kart, which weren't in bad condition. They were made of sturdy black rubber and were bigger than most go-kart wheels. So he began, and we followed, to look for a new setting for them. Where can we put these wheels? There was this old linoleum counter. There was a broken wheelchair we could maybe attach it to. Then, suddenly, my brother began to give orders. Paul, he commanded me, find two two-by-fours that are a little taller than you. Adele, he told my sister, I need a hammer and some nails. Three kids from the neighborhood were assigned the task of dragging the box frame of an old king-size mattress set from the garage into the driveway. We were eager workers, desirous to see what strange creation lay in my brother's vision and wanting to complete the project before mom and dad came home from work. Suddenly, it was done. A king-size mattress on wheels. The back wheels were attached directly to the mattress so this massive omnibus, though, could still be steered by pulling on one or the other of a two-by-four beam of wood that had been nailed into the center of the box spring with a wheel on either side. Front wheel steering. For brakes, another long beam of wood had been attached to the box spring with a single heavy 40-penny nail. 
pulling up on one end of that beam would cause the mattress, we hoped, to slow down as it was pushed against the street. Steering, braking, comfort, adventure, all systems were go. So six of us kids from the neighborhood lay down comfortably upon the expansive mattress and a push by my brother sent us rolling down the large steep hill upon which we live, Lassen Drive, a quiet street in the middle of the suburbs but not named after Mount Lassen for nothing. This steep road would connect to Tioga, Klamath, Whiskey, Whitney, Siskiyou, all roads named after mountains, offering an array of impressive slopes which could accelerate a king-size mattress go-kart from zero to 60 in no time. So we were quickly gaining speed, heading down Lassen Drive. How much fun to feel like you're laying upon a comfortable bed while at the same time rolling at a pretty good pace. My brother pulled hard on the rope as we reached Tioga Way and we made the first turn, Woohoo! A car began to follow us from afar. We were going as fast as that car and soon we were going so fast that the wheels popped off in every direction. Flew into people's yards and that mattress skidded to a stop in the middle of the one-way road called Tioga Way. Some man, probably trying to get home after a long day at work, blared his horn at us, calling us to move that oversized boss frame from the middle of the one-way road. But we ran along various paths through the houses, we knew the ways, back up to the deck that attached our house from which we could watch that mattress and that fellow and the cars lining up, trying to figure out what are we gonna do to get home? Eventually, the poor fellow and a couple others had to drag that king-sized mattress set in somebody's front yard and they got on their way. What an adventure. I tell you, even today, I can remember as clear as a bell what it was like to lay on that mattress and to watch the blue sky as we sailed down the hill. You see, taking the time and the energy to imagine something new, to think about options that weren't immediately obvious, led us to develop a king-size mattress go-kart and an absolutely unforgettable experience. Now, if we simply claimed to know, if we thought we could just see what needed to happen, that this go-kart was garbage and needed to be recycled, that sin would cut out a significant segment of the possible vision. Either I fix the go-kart or I throw it away. Either or, either or. That's thinking that is seductively simple, isn't it? Most often, it's blinding us to a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh option. How do we get beyond that either or thinking? By confessing that we do not know. By acknowledging that we are blind. We are not blind, are we? Jesus says, I hope so. Otherwise, we can fall into that trap, the sin of either or thinking. We're, we're not able then to tap into the wonder of the gray areas. Thankfully, our own Christian faith is replete with affirmations that help us to live in a place of not knowing. Consider, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. What craziness is that? 
the idea of a triune God doesn't sit well with human conceptions. It raises a lot more questions than it answers, doesn't it? Three as one simply doesn't make good logic. Perhaps, however, a multifaceted, non-dualistic doctrine such as the Trinity comes closer to reality than we think. It's Niels Bohr, that Danish physicist who was a major contributor to quantum physics, who said the universe is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. The doctrine of the Trinity is saying the same thing. God is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. In reality, if we think we know all that there is to know about the divine, then our relationship will experience a death by familiarity, right? The encouragement is to acknowledge that there's so much we do not know. Infant baptism, a core doctrine of the Presbyterian faith, also helps us to live in a place of not knowing. Why baptize infants? Look, either babies can confess faith or not, and they can't. Or can communities confess that it is God who produces faith, which they will nurture throughout the life of the child? God and the infant and the community all intertwined in the mystery of the development of Christian community. Regarding interpersonal relationships, Karen Armstrong applies this idea of acknowledging how little we know in an important way. She writes, quote, all too often we impose our own experiences and beliefs on acquaintances, result resulting in hurtful, inaccurate, and dismissive snap judgments about persons or whole cultures. Compassion, she asserts, rather, makes place for the other in social interaction, that acknowledging that I don't know everything about you just because I know you're from Croatia and I know that your last name is Armenian. I don't know everything about you. Compassion is acknowledging there is a mystery as I meet each individual and enjoying the unraveling of what we might possibly come to know. So Armstrong challenges us to try to pin down exactly what we know about someone else. She says, think about your, your spouse, your child, someone who you feel like you know really well, a colleague. What do you really know about their intimate goals and dreams, and how well do they know you? Compassion is going to acknowledge that many aspects of all of our interpersonal relationships, even those closest to us, are unknown and perhaps unknowable. How wonderful. How wonderful that life is not so simple, that we are blind in many ways, that there's so much to be learned if we are willing to look anew into the nature of God, into the relationships around us with the other people in which we regularly engage, and into our relationship with the world, into nature. We know nothing. We are blind. This coming week, I encourage you to look around your garage, your house, your yard, your workplace, at your family. What has become so familiar to you that you know it all, that you don't see it anymore? Look at those you love and see them again 
as if for the first time. Seek the deep mystery of the soul that lies within. Find the mystery in your relationships with your family and friends, with yourself, with God. Live life not assuming that you know it all or that you can know it all, but with curiosity, with excitement and energy. And let us all say, I don't know, and continue the great adventure of learning. Please pray with me. Dear God, we ask that you save us from the lie that we know it all. Save us from the lie of knowing. Help us, Lord, to say, even in our culture where knowledge is so affirmed, that we don't know. And as we do, Lord, walk with us on the great adventure that is the life you have given us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.